I, I just want to follow up on what Scott was saying about uh, the, the Roe v. Wade decision this week. It, it is great. I think people um, that are probably around my age, uh, I know I'm really, really young at 40, uh, 42 technically. Um, it, I think people around my age, I don't know that we appreciate uh, some of uh, our older brothers and sisters in Christ that have been praying for this for like 40 years. Uh, so this, this really is a, a big, big deal. I think there's a lot to rejoice over. Um, it, there's also a, a lot of work to do. Right, like there's there's a lot of women that we, the church Christians, we need to put our money where our mouth is, and we need to love them. We we need to support places like uh, like Scott was saying, Pathways. Um, they, they need a lot of help because of all of this. Um, clinics are getting are getting attacked, so they've had to put in uh, security measures, including like a uh, a film over their windows that's like bulletproof, uh, security cameras, all kinds of things. So there's new costs that you know aren't going directly to support uh, these these uh, these moms and these unborn babies that uh, churches need to help fill. Uh, I was thinking and praying about ministries that I just kind of assume will, will have to come about. I was thinking about um, Young Life. I think our church is pretty familiar with Young Life. They have a great ministry called Young Lives, and, and it's to uh, teenage girls that are pregnant. And, and what's great is they don't just support them like up until they have the baby, but they continue that, that relationship after the baby. If, you, if you've had a kid, um, man, it, being a new parent, it, it's hard. Like under the best of, of circumstances, it's hard. So we really, uh, the church, not just us, but all Christians, uh, we really need to make sure that, that we are we're going to love uh, people in these circumstances really, really well. So anyway, I've just been thinking about those things uh, this week. So Acts chapter 9, um, Saul, if you weren't with us last week, Saul uh, was, was really leading the way in persecuting uh, Christians. He was hunting down Christians, imprisoning Christians. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there were beatings of Christians, interrogating of Christians. Uh, Saul, who, who we, we later call Paul in Scripture, and I'll probably mess that up over and over again. Right now he's Saul, but I might call him Paul accidentally later. He's just wreaking havoc for uh, early Christians. Uh, and I'm sure that, that Saul was uh, a terrifying opponent of uh, this, this early church. But God did not let him continue down that path. Um, God didn't just put an end to Saul, though he would have been totally justified in ending Saul's life on the spot as Saul had approved of, of the killing of Christians like Stephen. So it would have been just for God to just just judge Paul or Saul on the spot um, and, and put the fear of the Lord in, in everyone around. Um, that's what I would have done. Uh, but, but God has a way better plan. God had been preparing, and he would prepare Saul, as we'll see in this passage, for good works that he created Saul uh, for, uh, good works that he created Saul to do in his kingdom, in, in making disciples, in preaching the gospel. And isn't it so good that God does that in us? He, he didn't just do that with Saul. He didn't just do that with the apostles or, or with the early church. God does that in us. He prepares us. He gifts us uh, to serve. God shapes us. Uh, he gets us ready for his kingdom work. And, and sometimes 
it's obvious, right? That, that God is using this, this experience in your life or this, this time, this season of life for his purposes. But at other times, we really can't see what God is doing, right? We, we can't figure out, we can't connect the dots to, to how God is, is, is taking this time that's hard, maybe frustrating, uh, and, and how he'll use it for uh, ministry, for disciple making. In fact, we can find ourselves even feeling frustrated, like God is actually wasting time. Like, God, what are you doing right now? And, and yet we know or at least we should know through Scripture that God isn't wasting any of it. God doesn't waste anything. So if you weren't with us last week, Saul, this persecutor of the church, he's on the road to Damascus. He's got orders in hand from the high priest to go after Christians. And then Saul, on that road, meets Jesus. He's blinded by this light. He hears the voice of the Lord. The, the light blinds his sight. So he, he physically, he had no sight, which is a picture of the spiritual blindness that Paul had already been living in and already been walking in. And if you don't know, Saul was uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I didn't know this, but the tribe of Benjamin traditionally was the first tribe uh, of Israel to go out to war. And, and they were proud to lead that charge for God's people. Saul was certainly proud to be uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He trained under Gamaliel. Uh, even Saul's name comes from the name of Israel's first king, and, and, and it's no accident, like so many of us, uh, you know, we, we pick a name because we think it sounds good, like all my kids' name ends in the letter N, right? I, I didn't pick their names because they, some guy before them did something heroic, like my son Hudson, everyone asks, is he named after Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary? Sure. <laughs> No, I just like the name Hudson. I wish I was as spiritual as you. <sighs> but people didn't name kids that way back then, right? This is, this is intentional on, on the parents' part, and it was intentional on God's part. Right? You can't help but see God redeeming the name of Israel's first king that failed to trust God. And, and here God's going to turn around uh, another Saul from the tribe of Benjamin who was zealous but at the time was wrong about who God was. Saul didn't lack courage or passion, but he did not yet know the Christ. And Saul was not that different from people that perhaps you and I know today. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a family member or a coworker that is just totally against Jesus. Not indifferent, but, but they rail against Jesus. They, they mock Jesus and his people. They hate Jesus Saul was the last person in Acts that you would expect to confess Christ. But God, in his grace, turned Saul's heart to himself. And Saul's story ought to challenge us to think and even expect more from God when we look at those who have not yet turned to Christ. And even those who have recently turned to Christ. I'm sure that all of us have people in our lives that, that we are tempted to, to think about them. We may never say it, but we're tempted to think, oh, they, they could never trust in Jesus. We see them as being so far from Christ, as if God has short arms that, that cannot reach. No, he, he can reach wherever he wants, whenever he wants, and whoever he wants. And Saul's conversion reminds us that God is going to save all kinds of people, including those who seem the least likely to come to him. 
So earlier in 9, God sends this man named Ananias to Saul, who introduces Saul to the other disciples. And we pick up in uh, Acts 9, 19, the, the second half of verse 19. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So at the beginning of this chapter, Saul was leaving Jerusalem with orders from the high priest to go after Christians, causing havoc for believers everywhere he went. And now after meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's causing a different type of havoc. He's creating gospel havoc. He's creating havoc for Christ's kingdom. Saul, who would later become Paul, he was an intense guy. Uh, you know those people that, that when, they, when they get into something, they don't just kind of dabble, they, they completely dive in. So Matt mentioned we had the ping pong tournament here yesterday. If Saul uh, wanted to join our ping pong tournament, he would have started training at least months ago, if not years ago. And, and when he arrived, he would have allowed for sufficient time to stretch um, before uh, doing a proper ping pong warm up, whatever that would look like, he would have worn court shoes, definitely a headband to prevent sweat from getting into his eyes. Uh, and obviously, he would have had his own custom made ping pong paddle. And he would have smoked all of us casual garage ping pong players. After meeting Jesus and being introduced to the disciples, Saul was all in. He, he was all in for Christ. God, after all, was the one who made Saul. He designed his personality. He gave him his strengths and his weaknesses. And God took this personality of Saul, this passion of Saul, and redirected all of it for Jesus and his glory. And we see this all the time in people uh, that come to Christ, right? They're one way before they meet Jesus. And then they come to Christ, and Jesus has this way of redeeming who that person was, what they were like, and not just harnessing what they were for his glory, but revealing really what he made them for. Sometimes a Christ follower might not recognize the way that God has gifted him or the, the way that God has gifted him or her for a long period of time. And, and maybe it's because uh, they, they really don't think that God has gifted them or maybe they aren't serving in any way. So there's, there's really not much opportunity for them to, to know how they're gifted, to grow in those gifts. But once they do figure out how God has gifted them and, and they start using that gift and, and experiencing both failures and successes, man, that gift grows. It, it takes off because it is, it is a gift given by the Spirit. Right? It was once lying dormant, underutilized, maybe atrophied, but now that gift is flourishing. Why? Well, because this is how God has created them. This is how God has gifted them. And, and if, you're, if you're a Christian, you have to know that God has gifted each believer in the body to serve. Right? He's, he's gifted us to do that. And if you don't know what your gifts are, uh, I want to just give you four things uh, to do. The first is just start praying. 
right? Like, talk to God about it. Ask God to, to show you, okay, how have you gifted me, God? And will you help me to, to grow this gift and use this gift? The second is, look at what Scripture says uh, about the gifting uh, that, that God gives to each believer. He gifts us in various ways, and it's critical that we believe that he really has gifted each one of us. Because I know, I meet many Christians that, that genuinely don't believe that God has gifted them at all for service, and that is just not true according to scripture. The third thing I would encourage you to do is ask a mature believer that knows you. Just ask them, hey, how do, what do you see in me? Right? How, do you, how do you think God maybe has gifted me? I'm, I'm telling you, people that, that know you are so much better at spotting what God is doing in you, how he has gifted you, then so often we will be. And then the last thing is find a ministry, get involved, start serving somehow, whether it's, whether it's a ministry in our church, a ministry, uh, a parachurch ministry like Young Lives or like Pathways, find a way to serve so you can start growing that gift. But Saul was gifted. He was gifted to be an apostle, ultimately an apostle to the Gentiles, which just means non-Jewish people. And he was made with, with this, this sharp, uh, lawyer-like mind, right? So that he was able to reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And God used certainly those years of studying as a Pharisee. And now God was doing powerfully, uh, he was working powerfully in the life of this new convert. And it's not strange that, that Saul immediately proclaimed Jesus. When a person meets Christ, when a person finally gives themselves to Christ, they cannot help but want to tell over. You just see this over and over again as you're around new Christians. They don't really need to be told that that's what we're supposed to do. You gotta be a Christian for a while to, realize, to, to need someone to tell you like, hey, you're supposed to talk about Jesus. But when you first meet Christ, you just do it. It's like a baby fish swimming, right? No one, no one tells them. They just start swimming around. And so it is with the new Christian. They start sharing about Jesus because God has radically transformed them. But what is remarkable about Saul's proclamation of Jesus is how prepared he was to speak about Jesus. And part of this is certainly that he knew the Hebrew scriptures. Like I said, he was trained as a Pharisee. He, he knew the Hebrew scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. His years of studying as a Pharisee, had been a massive help once he knew that Jesus was the Christ. But how else was he prepared to speak so convincingly about Jesus? As Saul, uh, the one who, who really hunted down Christ's followers, he had a front row seat to testimony after testimony about Jesus. He heard, he heard Christians like Stephen speak from the standpoint of the Jewish people about Jesus. As he came into houses, dragging out both men and women, he heard people stand up. He heard people affirm their faith about Jesus. He heard why they believed. He was exposed to their arguments from Scripture about Jesus. Much of his early proclamation of Jesus had to be influenced by the faithful saints that were being persecuted at the hands of Saul. And this reminds me of how easy it is to get discouraged when we try to tell someone about Jesus. And, and as far as we can see, our words went nowhere. It's like they just hit a brick wall and bounced off. But we have no idea how God may be using our witness to those who at the time reject Jesus. 
I heard someone compare it to uh, like when you get a tiny pebble in your shoe, you know, how annoying that is. Like maybe you're down at the lake and, and, and you feel something and I don't know if you're this way, but at first, like I'm so lazy that I try and convince myself that it's nothing, like it's not even there. And then my second step of laziness, once I acknowledge that, that uh, there is a pebble in my shoe, I kind of try and like push it with my toes to the side so I don't have to deal with it. But eventually, you can't ignore e- even the tiniest of pebbles in your shoe. Eventually, you've you got to take off your shoe and deal with it. Maybe your coworker wants nothing to do with Christianity. Right? They, they simply brush aside your reasoning for trusting Christ but you don't know what little pebble God is lodging in their mind and in their heart. Maybe some verse that you shared that that just keeps coming back to them, like this little pebble in their shoe, it it keeps bugging them and and it gets harder and harder for them to ignore it. They find themselves thinking about Christ even though they laugh at Christians or, or maybe Maybe they wholeheartedly disagree with everything that you think about Jesus, everything you think about the Bible, but they cannot deny your love for for so-and-so in the office that that gets on everyone else's nerves. They don't see how you can be so kind to to that, that person in the office that is just a selfish jerk. They don't understand why you don't join in in the gossip that everyone else loves to, uh, to partake in about him. We don't know. We don't know what seemingly little insignificant pebble-like work of the Holy Spirit is going on. And, and it might not be enough to stop them in that moment, but maybe, maybe at some point down the road, it will get their attention on Jesus. I suspect that as Saul was persecuting believers, there were several little pebbles lodging in his mind and in his heart that God was going to use in his timing. Saul, Saul was growing. Right? Saul came to Christ, he was growing, he was using him as he spoke to Jews, proving that he was the Christ. Then we come to verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Many days had passed. As you read that in Acts, if you're like me, you assume it's like maybe, maybe 14 days, maybe six weeks. Um, but Galatians, I think, helps fill in the details here. It's Galatians uh, 1, we'll go 15 through 19. This is, uh, this is Saul, who later becomes Paul, and he writes this. But when he who had sent, uh, set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother. So it seems likely that when we read here in 923, uh, some days had passed, many days had passed. This is that three years. And we don't know exactly what happened during that time, but we can trust that Jesus used that time to prepare Saul for ministry as an apostle. Saul needed to spend time with Jesus. Part of what Saul needed to learn was who Jesus was, right? That's what he asks on the road to Damascus. As he's blinded, he hears this voice of the Lord. He says, who are you, Lord? And and Jesus tells him, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. Paul Uh, would not be ready to preach the gospel without knowing Jesus. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So he had to know who Jesus was. Saul also needed to learn who he was. And he came to understand, as we read through the epistles, what a sinner he was, how badly he needed Christ to die for him. I think back to Isaiah, uh, the, the time that we spent Isaiah, as Isaiah is before the, the throne of God, he sees God in his glory, he says, woe is me for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm from a people of unclean lips. So Saul had to understand who he was. And lastly, Saul needed to learn what he was to do. Saul would be sent to share the good news. And then after this three years, that time is done and he is ready. So Saul comes back onto the scene in verse 23. And he'd already been successful in sharing about Jesus before this time. Certainly now, though, he was even better prepared. And through his epistles, we know that God told Saul that he was going to preach to the Gentiles. He would take the gospel to the nations. We know that Saul had a passion to go preach Jesus where Jesus had never been spoken of. And I have to think that as we get into verse 23 here, he's just chomping at the bit to jump into ministry. But it was not easy. Right? Saul had already been told that he would suffer for Jesus. And right away, we see that there are going to be serious uh, challenges, uh, great opposition to Saul sharing the gospel. Saul uh, was the lead persecutor of the church, but it's not like his absence left this gaping hole. No, there were others that quickly filled in his place with a similar passion, a similar intensity, a similar desire to squash out Christianity. And Saul, who wrote most of the letters to the churches was certainly humbled by these circumstances. And really, that's by God's grace. It is so gracious of God when he humbles us. We're really good. I'm really good at getting puffed up. We experience maybe some success as a Christian, right? Success in maybe it's discipling someone or, or maybe, maybe you lead a, a Bible study or some kind of small group or serving in, in some ministry capacity and, and things go well. You're using your spiritual gifts the way that God has gifted you just as he intended, but it doesn't take much for us to get prideful and think that we are the ones at work. We so quickly forget that it's the Holy Spirit working through us, but God is so kind to remind us. He's so kind to humble us, and he did that for Saul. The Jews were told in, in verse 23 they were seeking to uh, kill Saul, and they're, they're sitting, we're told, by the gate, ready to kill Saul. Uh, now Saul had, had convinced many that Jesus was the Christ, which is why they were plotting to kill him. And I, I suspect that at least some of these Jews plotting to kill Saul used to be his allies. Right? Maybe some of them even took orders from Saul as he searched house after house looking for Christians to persecute. But now it didn't matter if they used to be allies or, or even perhaps friends. Saul, the, the former hunter, was now the hunted. And some of you have experienced, maybe not getting hunted, but, but losing friends over your decision to trust in Jesus. Uh, I, doubt, I doubt that any of those former friends or family members or co-workers want you dead, but, but they treat you as if you have died. They'll have nothing to do with you. And, and for many, many Christians across the world, this is what they face. These Jews were watching the gate day and night for Saul. 
But Saul and his disciples found out that there was a plan to kill him. And so one night they snuck him out of a window. So I assume that there must have been a a Christian with a home right along the wall. And there was a window and they, they put him in a basket and lowered him through the window. And on the one hand, you can imagine that uh, this must have been exhilarating. I'm sure his heart was pumping uh, as, he's, as he's being let out this window in a basket. But Saul um, later writes uh, about this moment in 2 Corinthians uh, 11 as a moment of weakness. Right? This is a moment of helplessness. He was dependent on others. He could not save himself. People wanted to kill him, and there was nothing he could do about it, and he needed help getting out. He says this showed him how weak he was. And if you've read 2 Corinthians 11, you know that Paul has a very different take on weakness than we naturally do. He goes so far as to say that that he actually boasts about his weakness because in his weakness, God shines so brightly. His power is displayed through his weakness. You probably remember when Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the thorn in his flesh. He says that, that God gave him this thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what it was, but, but, but this irritant so that he would not be conceited. And I suspect that God is doing a similar thing here in Acts 9 as Saul faces difficulty after difficulty when his ministry is really supposed to kick off. But what's, what's happening is Saul is growing independence on the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, um, the difficulty doesn't just come from the outside. Verse 26, it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, right? These should be his new allies. And it says, and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And I can't blame them, right? right? They knew he was ruthless. He was a smart Guy, you wouldn't put it past a guy like Saul to try and infiltrate the church so he could just destroy it from the inside. So they didn't trust that his conversion was true. And just imagine the discouragement for Saul. As these are now supposed to be your people and they stiff arm you. At the same time, I'm sure he understood why they didn't believe him, why they were afraid of him. And, and I, I just wonder what his thoughts were like at this time. I wonder if he doubted if God could really use him after all that he had done to persecute Christians. I guarantee Satan the accuser was trying to cast doubt left and right in Saul's heart and mind. But God had a provision for Saul in this trial. Verse 27, but Barnabas... Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So Barnabas, and really we can't forget about Ananias that we read about last week. They were both critical here, right? Every church needs needs a whole bunch of Barnabases. And the name Barnabas, if you don't know, means son of encouragement. I often, uh, when people talk to me about our church, they'll they'll tell me how welcoming Harvest is. And and it's great. I mean, that was my my experience here the first time I came, like 14 years ago. I I was just so welcomed here. And, And that is very important, right? Churches ought to be the most welcoming places in the world. Um, But being nice 
to people when they come on, on a Sunday is really just the start. A church needs to invite people into community, into the life of the church, into the already established relationships of the church. And it's, it's tempting, especially when you've been in the same church for a while, it's tempting to just stick with your people. Right? On, on Sundays, it's easy to just always sit by your people, always talk to your people. But man, thank God for, for the people that include others, and, and that is many, many in this room. But when, when someone comes to faith, right, are you willing to be a Barnabas? Will you go out of your way to be an encourager to, to that brother or sister in Christ that, that, that all of this is brand new to? Will you help them to get connected with other Christians? Verse 27 says, Barnabas, Barnabas took Saul and, and brought him to the disciples. So the, the picture here is it, like, he, like he took him by the hand and, and, and he walked him up and introduced him. And, and, and this, is, this is just who Barnabas was. This was his gifting. He had a heart to help others. Barnabas wasn't a guy that gave up on others. We'll see that later. Barnabas was quick to believe that God was working in someone, and he gave the benefit of the doubt uh, to, to a brother or sister in Christ when others doubted. Now imagine if, if Barnabas and if Ananias hadn't followed God's prompting with Saul, right? hadn't reached out with Saul, hadn't, hadn't trusted what God was saying. Man, where would the church be? What would our Bibles look like? So is there a Christian in your life that God is asking you to be a Barnabas to? Right? Which means that, that you're gonna have to make room for them in your life. You're gonna have to cut some stuff out of your schedule to walk side by side with this newer believer. Barnabas vouched for what God had done in Saul's life uh, as he brought them, uh, as he brought him to into fellowship with the disciples. And it was this connection, this community of Jesus' people that, that, uh, that helped Saul. It says he went in and out preaching boldly from, from this community. He's preaching boldly about Jesus. Well, there's more resistance. The Hellenists, in verses 29 and 30, they seek to kill Saul. But, but there are brothers in Christ, all right, because of Barnabas, that, that found out about this. They stepped in and they helped get, uh, get Saul to, to Tarsus. So Saul stepping into ministry, right after that three years, stepping into ministry, it probably didn't go like he envisioned. Right? God had revealed that there would be trials. He, he revealed to Saul that he would suffer. But I don't know that he could have possibly understood how difficult it would be. And then we come to verse 31. And this is just one of those verses that it, it just seems like it comes out of nowhere. It says, so the church throughout all Judea in Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Right? What an unexpected verse as we read about all these problems, about all these challenges, these, these barriers, this opposition to the gospel. And yet the church experienced peace. And not, not, not only peace, but it was built up. Christ followers were walking in Christ. They knew the Lord. They were growing in Jesus. It says they were comforted by the Holy Spirit, and, and the church was multiplying. And there's nothing in the previous verses that would have led me to think that verse 31 is coming. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about suffering. He said, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. 
man, our American Christianity does not want to hear that. But, but he is spot on. If suffering isn't part of our following of Jesus, then Bonhoeffer questions our discipleship. And certainly this doesn't mean that we go out and we seek suffering, that we seek difficulty as a believer. No. And my guess is none of us struggle with ever doing that. But we, I'd wager most of us, if not all of us, have a hard time not chasing after comfort and really at the cost of giving ourselves to Christ. And it's because we don't trust that God will provide, right? When there's havoc all around, like we read about in chapter nine, we don't see how God could make verse 31 be true. I heard someone describe what's going on in verse 31 as as the eye of a hurricane. Uh, Apparently, in the eye of a hurricane, it is calm. It is still. The, the strong surface winds that are, that are coming to converge on the eye, they never reach the eye. And apparently, if you look up, it's blue skies, or if, or if it's at night, it, you see a, a starry sky. Chapter 9 and, and all that happened to Saul, it just sounds like, like these hurricane winds, chaos all around, persecution, death threats, needing to sneak apostles out of town to keep them alive, and yet God provides peace and growth, and the Holy Spirit is the one providing all of this. One of the strangest experiences as a Christian is the peace that God gives us. And at times when when it looks like your world is just falling apart around you, or or maybe, maybe it has, and yet somehow God grants you this peace that makes no sense at all by the world's standards. Luke, Luke goes on to tell of the, the good works, um, but he, he transitions now to Peter. And I, I'm not going to connect all the dots for you this week, but I believe that Peter, or that, yeah, that God was preparing Peter for what's coming up in Acts. Verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went here and there, among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named uh, Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And, and parents, we can all spot the miracle there, as you've told your kids so many times to rise and make their bed. So that was really low-hanging fruit. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe problems I need to deal with in my parenting. Um, no, he, he tells him to rise, make your bed. And, and, and he says very clearly, right, Jesus Christ heals you. And then look at the result here in verse 35. And all the residents, residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Right? This miracle was used by the Holy Spirit to lead others to belief in Jesus. Another miracle, verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Someday I will be mature enough to see the name Dorcas and not chuckle. But I'm not there yet. So the name, I don't know why they didn't just say this, but the name, it actually means gazelle. Which, which we do appreciate the beauty of that. But apparently Dorcas was a beautiful name back in the day. Um, but Dorcas was certainly, I'm not going to call her that, Tabitha was certainly uh, a beautiful woman inside and out. She was known 
for uh, the good that she did and for her generosity. That, that last line of verse 36, it says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And we find out in a moment here that, that Dorcas died, but I, I just wonder if your life was summed up in a sentence, how would it be summed up? That was, that was Tabitha, Tabitha's life. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She loved the Lord. Well, she ends up getting sick and dying, and, and people heard that the apostle Peter was not far away. He was in Lydda. So they sent for him, and Peter heads over, and, and he sees all these widows mourning over Tabitha, right? These, these widows that I'm guessing Tabitha had loved really well. She was, she was probably wealthy, and, and out of that wealth was able to be generous. They, they even show him, it says, like the, the clothing, the tunics, the, and the, the garments that, that Tabitha had made for people in need. Verse 40, Peter it says he put them all outside. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter stand up, or, and, and, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. Uh, amazing. And Jesus gave uh, incredible power and authority to the apostles, which authenticated uh, their ministry. It, it authenticated um, the, the early church. And, and I think it's why we see this incredible explosion of the early church to proclaim the good news and for people to respond. Uh, Luke, in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, um, it says, uh, this is Jesus, it says, and he, uh, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to uh, cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Right? So, so there's, there, I think there's something unique about this. But, but do miracles still happen today? Yes. Right? God, God is still at work. And, and it is good and right, I think, that we pray for people to be healed. I don't think there's any reason that we would not do that. And I would say there, there is something special about the power that God gave the apostles to perform miracles, right? It, it was pointing to the gospel message. And, and both of these healings, um, uh, if, if you think about the, the four gospels, I think we see that these really are duplicates of what Peter saw Jesus do. Right, telling Aeneas to rise and, and make your bed parallels Jesus speaking to the paralytic in John 5 when he, when he tells him, get up, take up your bed. And even Peter's words to, to Tabitha, there's only one letter different from what Peter says to Tabitha um, compared to what Jesus says to Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. Like, like it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's by the power of the Spirit that Peter's just following Jesus. And, and both of these people... Uh, that were healed. They're Jews living in, in a non-Jewish place. And, and what resulted is many, many people come into faith, right? Verse 42, it says, that it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So both miracles here with Aeneas and Tabitha were signs of salvation, right? The, the healing, the resuscitation of, of Tabitha, they were both visible signs of new life into which by the power of the resurrection, we sinners are raised. 
Both of the miracles resulted in the glory of Jesus as signs that authenticated the message of the gospel, and a lot of people turned to Christ. It's been, uh, it has been so good for me to be in Acts. I trust, I hope that it's been good for you uh, to be in Acts. And I hope it's not just on Sundays. I hope you read through Acts because uh, the more I get into Acts, the more I am challenged by the early church and how they lived out their faith, right? We, we remember back in the earliest chapters of Acts, one of the things that, that marked the early church was they were people that prayed, right? They, they prayed all the time, they were praying when, when they faced hardship. They were praying when things were going well and they're just waiting for the Lord. But they were people devoted to prayer. The early church, um, I think we see this as well, that they loved and welcomed new people into their community, right? E- even with Saul, right? There was, a, there was a Barnabas, there was an Ananias who were instrumental in helping Saul into the early church. Uh, another thing that marked the early church that we've seen through the chapters is they just proclaimed Jesus, like wherever they went, right? If they were forced to move somewhere else, man, you better bet that that, that new neighborhood, they were going to hear about Jesus. Their new place of work, they were going to hear about Jesus. That new market that they shopped at now, they were going to hear about Jesus. It didn't matter what they were doing. They were going to tell people about Jesus. And what we see was God is at work. He, he was faithfully preparing his people to be a people that would make disciples. There would be this multiplication of disciples. And really, though, we, we see that they're just living pretty ordinary lives in following Jesus, faithful lives, but God was doing extraordinary things through them. We come to the, the end of the chapter. We'll, we'll stop here in verse 43. This is Peter, it says, And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one salmon, uh, salmon. I love fishing. Uh, one Simon, uh, a tanner. Maybe I need to fish. I don't know. Um, so Peter, it says that he was with Simon, not salmon, a tanner. Uh, right? This, this guy tanned animal hides. Now, a serious Jew would not stay with a tanner. They, they found what they did repulsive. They found those, the, the people that did the job repulsive. The, the, their house w- would just reek like, like dead animals and, and, and skin. So tanners were ostracized by Jewish people. They were forced to live like a, a, a distance out of the city so people didn't have to be near them. There was actually a, a rabbinical law that said if a, if a woman was engaged, betrothed uh, to a man and discovered that he was involved in, in tanning, not like from the sun, but uh, animal tanning, uh, she could break off the engagement. Um, but Peter, right, like we can't even imagine that, but, but Peter... He met a tanner who loved Jesus, and God was changing Peter. He was preparing him for his good works, which we'll, we'll get more into that this next week. But would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that, that your arms are not short, that there is no one that is outside uh, of your reach, Lord. And, and I'm sure that, that every believer in here and every believer that's watching with us online has at least one person that we, we just love. And we, we desperately want them to come to know you, Jesus. But if we're honest, it, it is hard to keep praying that prayer because it looks like they will never come to you. 
Jesus, we, we confess our lack of faith. We confess our, our weakness uh, of believing that you, you really can and will do whatever you want to do. And, and, and God, we, we pray, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that, that maybe have a hard time even asking you to save that person. Lord, would you do that? God, would you, would you reach down into their life and, and, and reveal to them the truth of the gospel? God, would you help us to continue to pray on behalf of those, those family members, those loved ones, those neighbors, whoever they are, God? Would we expect, Lord, that you are gonna, you're going to save people that would just shock us? And, and God, we want to be a part of that, Lord. We want to be a part of you, you bringing all kinds of people to yourselves. Lord, would you help us to live faithful lives? Lord, would you help us to, to trust that you've actually been preparing us to be a part of, uh, of your kingdom work of making disciples, Lord? God, would you grow us? Would you, would you help us to use the ways that you have gifted us to, to encourage, to declare or to walk alongside someone that doesn't know you yet or, or even someone that, that just came to know you, Lord. Would we, would we not be selfish? Would we not be lazy? Would we just be faithful to you? God, would we live out our love for you, Jesus? It's in your name we pray. Amen.